Did you know that uh, meow mix is so good, cats ask for it? <laughs> Have you tried Bounty, the quicker picker-upper? You know that M&Ms melt in your mouth, not in your hand. Would you walk a mile for a camel? Did you know that Hertz could put you in the driver's seat? You know that Clorox bathroom cleanser gets you clean around the bend. <laughs> you know, for decades, advertising companies have been paid big bucks to come up with persuasive slogans to sell products. Years ago, these catchy sayings seemed to work. But after decades of being inundated by endless ad campaigns, people have started to become cynical and wise to the jingles and the slogans and the, the gimmicks. And so to be persuasive these days, advertising has had to become either much more subtle or much more creative, and also costs much more money to try and produce an effective impact. Top commercials often run into the multi-millions of dollars to make a convincing impression on consumers. As Charlie Brown once said in a Peanuts cartoon, you just can't get people to believe you these days. You know, politicians also uh, encounter the same kind of skepticism because we've mostly been inoculated against fake news and false promises. And of course, preachers too you know, come up against a lot of resistance, skepticism, and suspicion in a world where con men who appear to be interested in our welfare are really only interested in our wealth. So people tend to shut the door and say, well, we're just not interested. And you can't blame them for being on their guard. A few weeks ago, Kim and I walked past a house in Lower Gibson's where we used to live, and uh, we were surprised to see a sign on the door in bold letters on the front door saying, no peddlers or religious sects. And I guess you can't fault people for not putting out the welcome mat when they've been exposed to so much attempted persuasion. So how then do we communicate the gospel to those around us who have such armor-plated resistance to being talked into anything? How do we convince them that the gospel is about sharing, not exploiting? That it's about giving, not taking? Well, in Psalm 34, we have an answer. There is one kind of advertising that has been and still is effective. It's older than modern technology, it's simpler and cheaper than high-tech professional presentations, and it's actually the most compelling form of persuasion known to mankind. It's the genuine, personal endorsement. Well, advertisers have tried it, of course. You know, TV actors and celebrities telling us why they switched to brand X. But we know that those people get a big fat paycheck for those endorsements. But if someone who you know to be honest and to have no hidden agenda tells us from their firsthand experience that Brand X is the real deal, we'll sit up and take notice. You know, even in these days of skepticism, a genuine personal endorsement or a trustworthy testimony can be very persuasive. I mean, when a truly trustworthy person says to us, this is what worked for me, it can work for you too. And that's what David is doing in Psalm 34. He's telling us here he's had some trouble, big trouble. 
But God has delivered him in the most amazing way. And he's saying here, I want others who are in trouble to share my experience of, of deliverance because this faith in God thing really works. It worked for me, so give it a shot, and you'll see that it'll work for you too. So there is a kind of Christian communication that has a chance of breaking through the doubt and cynicism of our day. And it's the real-life personal endorsement based on firsthand experience that says, taste and see. Taste and see. Well, in verses 3 to 6 here, David shares his testimony. <clears throat> he says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. That's David's personal endorsement for effective deliverance from trouble. But you know, in this psalm, <clears throat> David is referring to a very specific occasion. Paul has told us a little bit about that. He's talking here about a particular scary and troubled time in his own life. And there's a superscription that's written at the top of the psalm. I don't know if we can project that one, but it, it helps us to discover what that frightening and dangerous circumstance was. It says, Psalm 34 of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. What in the world is that all about? Well, we read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 21. It's when David was on the run from a homicidal King Saul here. David had been his, his leading general here, had been winning battles for Saul. But, when Saul, got, but Saul got jealous of David, when, especially when a popular folk song came out that everybody was singing that said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands, which included the slaying of Goliath of Gath, Philistine giant. And so David now find, suddenly finds himself in trouble. He has to flee from King Saul. He's alone, he's desperate, he's running for his life. And so David escapes to the only place that Saul couldn't reach him. He fled into enemy territory, to the Philistine city of Gath. And, you know, it seems like he's running right from the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> you know, those Philistines recognize David. And they grabbed him, and they, they brought him before their king, Abimelech, who's also known as Achish. And David was scared out of his mind. And so in a desperate act to save his life, he decided to act like he was out of his mind. He feigned insanity before the Philistine king. And in 1 Samuel 21, it tells us how David had pretended to have gone mad here, drooling in his beard, groveling on the floor, making marks on the wall, and an apparent nutcase of himself. Well, the king of Gath, you know, he was a powerful guy. He was a dangerous guy, but he wasn't too bright. Uh, he fell for David's play acting. <laughs> and he said, this guy's insane. Get him out of here. And so they threw David out. A little roughed up, probably, but alive and deeply grateful for it. Well, from there, David fled into the wilderness, and he hid himself in a, in a cave, which is probably where he composed this psalm. 
And as he wrote the psalm, he was thinking back. He was thought of those moments of terror when he was there in Gath where he prayed like mad to the Lord. And so he writes these verses saying, I sought the Lord and he answered me. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his trouble. You know, a lot of the psalms were written in the midst of trouble. You know, when the psalm writers were crying out for deliverance from one thing or another. But this psalm is a little different. It's a response to having already been delivered from trouble. It was written when David's burden of fear and, and, and trouble had just been wonderfully lifted from him. And he was ecstatic because he knew he had received a divine answer to his prayer. That's why he begins the psalm with such exuberant praise in verses 1 to 3. Listen to him. He says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. What he's saying here is, believe me, folks, when you look to God in the midst of your fear and trouble, he'll do great things for you. When you find yourself in a desperate situation, do what I do. Call on God and he'll come through for you. So let's exalt his name together. And so David here is a genuinely satisfied customer. And he declares it here from firsthand experience. He offers his personal endorsement, a vibrant testimony to God's goodness and saying, you can experience it too. So like a good salesman, David is urging us here to try it for ourselves. He says in verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. But David doesn't want to keep the blessing all to himself here. And so he says, well, why don't you take the taste test? You know, don't just believe in God's goodness. Experience his goodness. And see if God doesn't meet you at your point of need like he met me. My personal recommendation is, taste and see that the Lord is good. So David here recommends that we look to God and we take the Pepsi challenge. Right? To taste and see that God is good. You see, God met David in his mess and turned it into a message. And God wants to meet us in our mess too and turn it into a message our own personal endorsement that the Lord is good and will deliver us. But unlike most salesmen here who want to persuade you before letting you know the price, um, David in the next verses goes ahead and tells us that there's a cost involved. He says, if you're going to experience God's goodness as I have, you've got to be ready for a couple of things in order to taste that goodness. The first is, You've got to have a deep reverence for God himself. There's a, a word that occurs five times in this psalm here, and in verse 9, twice. In verse 9 says, Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. And once more, verse 11, it says, Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And we know that David was a brave man. 
But obviously, he knew a lot about fear as well. He was afraid of Saul. He was afraid of Abimelech. He was afraid of dying in the wilderness. And like him, we all have things, too, that make us fearful. But he's talking here about a different kind of fear, the fear of the Lord. And oddly enough, David is saying here, the remedy for all our fears is fear. He says, fear the Lord for those who fear him lack nothing. He's saying, if, if my God isn't big enough to strike some fear in me, if his awesomeness doesn't cause me to tremble, then he's not going to be much comfort when I'm shaking in my boots before the Philistines. He's saying a God who isn't almighty enough to cause some trepidation in you is hardly going to make them afraid. You see, we need a God on our side who's so awesome, who's so fearsome, that he's even more formidable than all the other things that terrify us. Some of you have read C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia there, and you may remember when Little Lucy, this little girl, is confronted by the idea of Aslan, the lion, who represents God or Jesus in the story. And she asks, is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then Mr. Tumnus, the fawn, also says, he's wild, you know, not a tame lion. If we fear the Lord, that is, if we hold him in profound reverence for the tremendous God that he is, we should have nothing else to fear. Other fears pale into insignificance before the fear of the Lord. But he's a good Lord. As Jesus said in Luke 12, 4-5, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. I, yes, I tell you, fear him. We have a fearsome God, but he's a good God. and We need the fear of God in our hearts. We want to do this taste and see thing. See, we can't prove the goodness of God without a deep respect for God. We have to, and we have to trust that he's good. It says it kind of in Psalm 147, verse 11. It says there, The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Fear and love. Kind of go together here. And so we need to have this deep reverence for God. But there's something else we also need. That is, we also need to have a sincere commitment to God's standards if we want to see that the Lord is good. It says in verses 12 to 14, Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You see, God has designed this world 
and us to operate according to certain moral laws. Just as God's law of gravity controls and affects us physically, there are also God-ordained laws that affect us morally. Think in terms of the Ten Commandments. Now, some people don't like the idea that there are moral constraints on our lives, but it is a fact of life. It's how we're made. It's part of creation. And so we are called and created for goodness, and we're to turn away from evil. Now, this theme of goodness is sort of dominates in these verses here. They tell us that because the Lord is good, in verse 8, that those who trust him will lack nothing good, verse 10. But in order to experience good, verse 12, we must shun evil and do good, verse 14. And if we could do that, life in this world would be long and happy. So the psalm calls for a profound reverence for God and also a sincere commitment to his moral standards. And people who seek to do these two things, though of course we are, we are not perfect, people who seek to do it are described here as the righteous in verse 15. And it's them who David urges to taste and see that the Lord is good. He challenges them to take the taste test and prove his goodness. And so he says in verse 17, the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. And David is absolutely convinced of that. That's his testimony. But you may wonder, well, if I fear God and obey his word, will I really have no more troubles? Well, that's not exactly what David's saying here. I mean, we know that David was a man after God's own heart. He had God's favor on his life. But we also know that he himself had lots of fears and troubles. So then, what does he mean when he says God delivers them from all their troubles? Does he mean we'll have a trouble-free life? No. He means that when someone fears God and obeys God, there's something they can do about their troubles that others can't or maybe won't. And that is, they can call on God. They can pray. The righteous cry out, he says, and the Lord hears them. So like David, we're not immune to, uh, to trouble. We all have our own trials to endure. But we don't have to give in to despair. David's testimony here is not a testimony about the absence of trouble, but to a deliverance from trouble in answer to prayer. And that's what he wants to share here with you and me. You may be facing some troubles in life. You may be feeling hurt. You may be feeling alone. You may be sad. But he says here in verses 18 to 19, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. So we taste and see God's goodness when we experience his loving presence in the midst of our sorrows, and when we receive his protection in the midst of our troubles, and when ultimately we receive and experience his great salvation. 
As Jesus assured us in John 16.33b, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. David agrees. He says, yeah, I can endorse that. I've been there. I was at my wit's end, but I trusted the Lord, and I'm a free man today. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. And I think people today need to hear that kind of personal endorsement from those who've proven God to be faithful, who've tasted and seen that God is good. Are you willing, like David, to personally endorse God's goodness, to share your testimony with others, what God has done for you? Because, you know, when people see an ordinary person finding new hope and deliverance, and new life in Christ, it has an impact, I think, that's greater than many programs and promotions and so on. It's powerful. I mean, look at an example in John chapter 4. Remember when that Samaritan woman, whose life was a real mess, encountered Jesus beside Jacob's well. And he spoke to her about living water, revealed himself to her as the Messiah. And she got a a taste of that living water, and she returned to her town with a testimony. And it says in John 4, 38, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. God turned her mess into a message. And he can turn your mess into a message too. He's a good God. But maybe you're thinking, well, you know, I really don't have that kind of personal experience to, of God to, to share. Or I don't, I don't really have a prayer relationship with God like David did. Well, that may be because you haven't taken the taste test. You haven't given it a try. Maybe, maybe you've wanted the proof before you put it into practice. You want to see before you taste. You know... Biblical faith is experimental in character. You have to taste in order to see. Theoretical knowledge of God is not enough. It has to be experimental. You've got to try it out. You've got to give it a whirl. It's kind of like this. The top floor of a tall office building is being renovated. And new floor-to-ceiling glass windows were installed. There was a tremendous view, <laughs> but those who moved into that new office really didn't trust it. And it freaked them out because it seemed like you'd only have to lean on that thin pane of glass and you'd fall right out. And so the office manager called in the engineer who oversaw the renovation. And the engineer tried to explain to them about the solid construction, the amazing strength of the glass, and how safe it was, but they weren't convinced. And so he had an idea. He walked back into the middle of that top floor office, turned, and he ran full tilt at that window, launching himself off the floor, shoulder first into the glass, 20 stories up. And he bounced right back. Bruised, but the window was intact. So, you know, as an engineer, he knew the theoretical composition and specifications of that glass, but it wasn't really experimental until he put it to the test. 
until his feet were off the floor and his shoulder was colliding with that glass window. Well, I don't know that you'd want to try that. But in a similar way, a theoretical or second-hand knowledge of God does not produce a convincing testimony. Some people's knowledge of God is only second-hand. It's only a matter of doctrine or a matter of hearsay rather than first-hand experience. That's not how David knew God. His was an experimental faith there. I sought the Lord and he heard me. He met me in my mess and turned it into a message. So the God of the Bible has to be personally known and experienced, or, or he hasn't really been encountered. And we can encounter him. We can know him. We have to taste and see. So let's ask ourselves, is our faith a personal faith? The faith of your parents, the faith of your your spouse, that's not your faith. You need to have your own faith. You need to taste and see. You need to seek the Lord and experience his deliverance from sin and from trouble. And that's when it becomes real. And that's when it, it can become a persuasive testimony as you share your experience with others. Your own personal endorsement that the Lord is good. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice, David says. You know, anyone can say, Jesus died for the sins of the world. But saying that is not what makes you a Christian. You become a Christian when you can say from your heart, he died for me. Let's pray. Lord, this faith that you call us to is indeed an experimental faith, something you want us to try, something you want us to trust you in. It's not something we just have as a head knowledge, but it's something that goes deep into our heart that we truly believe and commit our lives to. And Lord, it's real. And I pray today that you reveal yourself to each and everyone, the reality of Jesus Christ and the power that he brings to our lives, power for good, power for help, power for salvation. So come, Lord Jesus, and thank you for your word. Thank you that faith is not theoretical. The Bible is not theoretical, but it is experimental. It's something that we need to apply in our lives, something that works. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.